Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Gerard Jones to speak about his coaching career today. Gerard is no stranger to the coaching scene, having served in many different countries from ranging from the likes of the UK, the US, Bangladesh, New Zealand, Italy, Morocco, and I think he has some news he may want to announce in this podcast. Jared, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to have me. Really looking forward to talking and uh, sharing ideas, talking football or soccer, depending on who's listening. And uh, yeah, it'd be great. I think where you are in the world at the moment, you're preferring it to a lot like soccer. But um, Jared, is there any news you want to share with us today about any possible moves in the future? Yeah, obviously, just all the time, you know, new opportunities. I mean, I'm delighted to be growing my new uh, coach education platform, which is great because we're, we're working with a number of different clubs around the world and, and obviously coaches across all different levels. And that's led on to being uh, given an opportunity to work uh, full-time in the MLS uh, with a Major League Soccer Pro Club uh, as a director of coaching. So again, you know, loads of exciting opportunities and I'm continuing to work with coaches and work with players at the top end as well as people all over the world. Fantastic. And that's not even to mention the great work you're doing, of course, what you learn to play is, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see in the background, which we'll discuss later on. But moving from the present back to the start, Jared, can you take us through your earliest football memory? Wow. Uh, good question. I, I think probably, I mean, I always remember, you know, growing up and playing with my friends, going to the local park. There used to be this place called, I used to live in a little village called Thorpe Willoughby. And it was just outside of Selby, which is an interesting area, um, not too far from York, which would be the major city there. And it's probably in between sort of York and uh, even if you're going the other way, you could probably go towards Leeds. And I always remember going to this uh, field at Thorpe Willoughby where Thorpe United used to play. And they'd have all the goals out there. The goals were fantastic. These big metal goals on rollers. And nobody damaged them. We took care of it. We respected it. We, we used to play World Cup games, cuppy doubles. You'd play on the street. You know, I loved it. And then I always remember going with my uh, friends around there. Probably one of the first matches I ever went to was Middlesbrough versus uh, Leeds United, I think. It was either Middlesbrough v Leeds. It was a reserve game uh, back then. Um, or it was uh, might have been a, a Leeds United versus York City game type of thing um, and again just you know admiring those sort of players I can remember him like Paul Robinson before he went on and ended up having an incredible career as a goalkeeper uh, watching some other players like Lucas Radderby was an outstanding defender um, I think it was South African and uh, he used to be you know top player and he was helping out the reserves that day and you know a few other lads who obviously ended up having some good careers from Leeds United who were in the youth team at the time and the reserves so yeah obviously the lad from Willoughby hasn't done that bad um, you've been afforded <laughs> you've been afforded unbelievable opportunities to go and travel the world coaching around the world I mean what drove that curiosity from your side to go and explore I, I've always been really curious. I never, ever thought I'd end up in the States. I definitely never thought I'd end up in Africa. Um, but I I was always curious to sort of grow, get different ideas, meet new people. I never wanted to sort of just live and die uh, in the same area because I see that, you know, if people want to do that, good luck to them. There's, there's no right or wrong. You know, it's whatever you do. It's your preference. But I didn't necessarily want to you know, for opportunities, limit myself or my career potential to a certain geographical location um, because effectively what's around there, you know? So I think I just wanted to meet new people, new ideas versus being in a, a little bubble where that's the sort of center of your world and that's the only resource of information. So even at a young age, I mean, I used to get on the train. I used to go to Garfa on my own, 13, 14, 15, and what Simon Clifford, uh, who was back then obviously founded Brazilian soccer schools, brought football to Salau to the UK and around the world, inspired people in so many different ways. He was a futsal pioneer, right? And he worked with a lot of people. He, I was even there on one of the nights when uh, Southampton were obviously going through that process with him. And, the, and obviously Sir Clive Woodward took him to Southampton. 
Um, I was there that night when they were there at uh, Garth of Town's ground and he was doing a session on the on the main pitch. I used to love it. And people like that didn't even realise, I used to go watch, even as a teenager, I used to go watch a guy called Sean McCauley. I don't know where he is now. I think he's in the States. He used to be the academy manager and the under-18s coach at Sheffield Wednesday. So as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, I used to go to these places, watch him coach, spend some time around the youth team. I'd, I'd make a day of it. You know, I'd literally get on the train to Sheffield on my own, try and figure it out. I'd, uh, the, the, I think it was either the train or the tram, I can't remember, would pull in. And as you pull in, literally opposite the, where, the, where the station is, would be where the, the, the indoor dome was. And in there, I'd watch like the back then football in the community sessions. So you'd watch the youth team, you'd watch the football in the community. Then on an evening, you watch the academy. Again, learning loads, uh, even at 18, 19, watching Martin Diggle, who's obviously now head of coach development at Liverpool, worked for the FA for many years across a number of different roles, was involved in the creation of like Urian Batemans and many other top people, Pete Sturgis and a few other good guys with the, uh, you know, like John Oldpress and all, all the, I mean, influenced by John Cartwright, um, but people who uh, obviously developed the Youth Award, uh, the Advanced Youth Award with the English FA and the influenced the, the pathway with many other people, which we saw within the Elite Player Performance Plan, the EPPP, which is going back, you know, over 10 years ago um, in his earliest introductions, right? And... Again, I used to watch Martin before he ended up having the career he had. He was a centre of excellence coach uh, with Ian, funnily enough, at uh, Bolton Wanderers. And I used to turn up. He used to, they used to train opposite the stadium. And I used to turn up and um, watch sessions. And they were doing arrival activities. And they used to have these little sheets like this, like little booklets. And they'd give them to the players. They were laminated. The players could set up their own activities create their own challenges, um, their own games. And so it, it, incredible. So again, like watching that, seeing him, obviously he went on to Leeds. He was a, a lecturer at Leeds Beckett for a bit. Um, back then I think he was called Leeds Met. And then, you know, he's gone on in his career um, to, you know, driving again as a teenager. You know, I used to watch Accrington Stanley. <laughs> used to watch uh, some top academies. Used to watch Old Trinham. Used to go watch Rochdale, you know, and, Rochdale for me is an outstanding model for youth development. You know, years ago when Keith Hill came in and, and then obviously when Keith moved on into the first team and, you know, T uh, Tony Ellis, Chris Beach, they were obviously brought in. Tony was and still is the academy manager there. Um, at the time, it was a centre of excellence before the Triple P. So you had academies and centres of excellence, right? And I remember being 19, 20, 21, you know, driving to watch sessions at Rochdale uh, on a Thursday night, Friday night, all these type of things. And I used to live in Hull, so I used to study at Hull University and then I'd drive across or <laughs> drive even before I passed my test. My dad used to take me uh, or anyone and uh, I'd come over to Rochdale, watch sessions, make notes, get involved, do stuff voluntary before I passed my UEFA B and then obviously end up getting a job the job there within the academy. Um, so I've always had that hunger just to constantly be on a quest to learn. And you can probably see, I mean, even if you look at my education, you know, I've literally, I grew up in a little tiny village, went to Selby High School, uh, didn't want to go to Selby College, did not want to go to Selby College, I had zero interest. All my friends were going to Selby. I ended up going to York and even then that was too close for me really, if I'm being honest. Um, I didn't stay long at York. Uh, I only went there for one reason, which is, again, it's a little bit further. I wanted to see what it was about. And um, I had a trial at York City, played a couple of games for him, ended up signing for Halifax Town. Um, back when they were... Chris Wilder was the manager, believe it or not. So when they were in the conference, uh, before now it's called FC Halifax. It was then Halifax Town AFC. Um, so I played for Halifax and, um, you know, they had some great, fantastic uh, environments there. Um, I was at York, ended up being there around like Gordon Staniff, which again was a great education because years later, ended up uh, passing me for my UEFA B with Julie Chip Chase and a few others like 
working with like Dennis Mortimer and people like that. So again, you can probably see I'm, I'm, I'm bumping around and I'm, I'm being quite strategic in wanting to meet people. And, you know, even people who are quite harsh and strong and, and, and clearing their views, getting different perspectives that would often be, you know, conflict into mine. You know, I grew up in an, I won't say his name, but he was, he was a very aggressive coach. Uh, he, his mentality was stop, stand still. Let me tell you the answer. Uh, fear of failure would stop it, freeze it. So whenever you made a mistake, he's amplifying that mistake to the whole world. Um, you, you didn't really want to take risks in training sessions because you were nervous that you were going to get told off. You know, if you lost, you'd be running, there'd be a punishment. That's what I grew up in as a youth player. And even at Halifax Town, it was, it was like that. Uh, it's not like that now, but that's what it was like back then. So I couldn't be any further away from that. And even as a kid, I was like, this isn't for me. And I always knew I wanted to go into coaching at some stage. And um, again, you know, if you look at my education, I've gone to the North Yorkshire, I've gone to uh, West Yorkshire. I, I studied at Calderdale College. I've done my PGC teaching degree at Huddersfield University, number one teacher education university in the country. Um, second is Cambridge. I studied my master's degree at Stirling University, which is the top five university for sports science uh, research. It's outstanding online uh, degree in performance coaching and, you know, the, the Scotland University, right, for sport. Um, I end up doing my PhD now. I'm studying my PhD at Sheffield Hallam with Professor Keith Davids, who's the world-renowned leading expert in skill adaptation, constraints-led approach, ecological dynamics. You know, there's no surprise that Southampton's just introduced a, an ecological lab and practice design. And so you can sort of see geographically, I've gone Scotland, I've gone Manchester, I've gone Hull, I've gone everywhere, you know, and even now I'm doing, um, uh, I'm on a program with Cambridge University, which is obviously one of the most prestigious universities in the world. I'm on a business program with them, high tech innovation through you Learnly. So, and then obviously with my coaching career, you know, I won't, we've got all the time to talk about it, but I'm fortunate that, you know, my former boss who headhunted me and brought me to Morocco as an elite coach educator, Oshan Roberts, who's now assistant manager to Patrick Vieira in the Premier League. He's mentored some of the best coaches in the world. Um, he's worked with some fantastic people and he's highly regarded as one of the best technical directors or at least coach educators in the world. Um, you know, he did an amazing job with Wales you know, did incredible as assistant manager. He's been assistant to the, you know, the the late Gary Speed, obviously Ryan Giggs, Chris Coleman, did incredible well in the Euros, as you'll remember. Um, worked with some world-class players, you know, in Gareth Bale and many other players. And obviously now he's with another former world-class player and obviously doing well as a coach, Patrick Vieira. He's worked with some unbelievable names. Again, I was mentored by by Oshan Roberts, you know, who's, who's up there. So I've been fortunate that my, even from the early age, uh, I've always been constant in this quest to learn more, surround myself with people that have got a different perspective, but they have to be in the best. I've like hunted them out with a, with a passion to, to be surrounded by the best people in the world. And that's, there's many other names that, I, you know, I could, we'd be here all day but people in France, Belgium, you name it, that I've hunted down, for want of a better word, man marks. And, and uh, again, just surrounding myself with good people. And I have I didn't want to be trapped into one way of thinking. I wanted to get loads of different experiences. And there's no surprise, it's seen me, this amazing ball, I don't know what's so powerful about it, but it's this soccer ball, football, as we call it, has this power to bring people together. And it, it has literally took me all over the world. It's took me all over the world to Morocco, America, New Zealand, Italy, Belgium, everywhere, you know, and it, I'm, I've, I'm incredibly privileged to, to make a living out of it and to continue to learn. You know, no different to you. It's took you all over, hasn't it? So, you know, it's it's great. We're lucky. Very fortunate. And wow, like there's a lot there to ponder and reflect upon. But <laughs> to, to have a foundation as strong as that, where you're going out hunting a breadth of experiences and you're getting a depth of thinking 
and then you're going out looking for these mentors and role models like that's unbeatable to not only get into the industry but to also sustain a career in it and succeed and if you don't mind me saying i think that breadth of knowledge is reflected in the work you've been putting out there um i mean yourself mentioned for academic you know combining the practical <laughs> and the academic side of things you're actually one of the first coaches to it, and i said this off camera that i came across who was actually championing the space i mean over time now have you begun to witness a big shift in the profile of coach which is actually coming through the game yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you've got a lot of different youth coaches now that are coming through that are highly educated. You know, when I remember, again, won't name names, but I remember coming in and there was this anti-academia. And I was never an academic, by the way. I absolutely, like, I went to university as a last resort. I genuinely, I was at Halifax Town. I got released. I had a couple of trials at different clubs and basically wasn't offered a contract played for a couple of uh, semi-pro clubs, Conference North sort of level. And I was making a decision of, am I going to try and go down here and be deluded? And maybe I get it, maybe I know whatever I end up. But I always knew I loved coaching. I loved the idea. And I was even at Halifax, I was coaching uh, kids back then at the Centre of Excellence on an evening. So loved it. And I thought, oh, you know, and then later, you know, you're in your 30s and then you're getting your, your licences. Or do I start now and build my career early and then I've got that that head start, do you know what I mean, and that gap? Um, certainly, and the, the other thing was, obviously, I've not played professionally. So there's you're trying to find ways to, you know, address areas where you might lack in other areas, if that makes sense. And certainly back then, and there is still now in some cases with some clubs, there's like, you know, have you played professionally? Some clubs have a preference for ex-players or certain individuals but I think there's a change I think genuinely people are looking at it now going how good are you as a teacher they recognize that there's other qualities that go into it you know just because you play doesn't necessarily mean you can create an environment where you can make learning happen and you can really individualize your messages and that's that takes a lot of time a lot of work and I would say for me I'm, I've, I'm witnessing now and I've witnessed for a number of years when I first came in and I was even doing my degrees, I was like, it was almost like I, I was 19, 20, 21 and in my early mid twenties. And sometimes I was a bit embarrassed because, um, and I shouldn't have been made to feel that way, but there's certain people that would like try and knock it down as if it's not real or whatever. Or and I just think, oh, whatever. I, I just thought if you can have another angle of your lens and underpin more, of why you do what you do, you know, what's the science, what's the, what, what, what's the reason, the rationale behind why you do what you do, that, that's really powerful. And then obviously if you've got the practical experience to go with that, wow, game changer. So, I mean, that's why I use like the pracademic because I've got a foot in both camps. I'm not a guy who's just read a textbook and, you know, has got these mad theories and thinks, oh, I can do it. I've got a lot of experience on the grass but then equally I can I can sort of bridge the gap between the two and I've got a foot probably in both camps. I think if you look at a lot of coaches now have aged out and those sort of grey coaches, some of them still have a lot of value because of their experience. There's no question of that. But the, 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 not a lot of them have evolved or adapted with the times. You know, we're on Zoom now. You've got, you've got to be tech savvy. You've got to be, you know, I used to hear this as a criticism, keyboard coaches or laptop coaches as if it was a negative. Um, and I was actually, I'd take that as a compliment. Um, if I'm finding other ways to create learning, if I'm, you know, I'd hear people, oh, God, these coaches are great on PowerPoints, but they can't coach on the grass. And I'd, I, I don't agree with that. But I, I think if you've got the skills to, to be able to communicate in the modern world, which is, you know, very diverse and requires information at speed like that, you know, it's, there's that military term, VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And it's from the book, 64 Shots. We actually live in this super VUCA world. Right now, I can Google your name and get information on you instantaneously. That, that's the reality, isn't it? I don't need someone to tell me the answer. I can find it myself. The future player, the modern player now, wants instant information, wants constant feedback, wants they're constantly searching for 
what's the relevance to me and why? Why are we doing this practice all? Why are you giving me this challenge? Why, why are you putting me in this particular role in the game? How is that relevant to me and my strengths and my profile, my identity? That's the reality now. And I think what we've got is we've got coaches that have evolved with that and have also probably come through that education as well. You know, so again, they've evolved with technology and with the times and the digitization of everything and the, the constant quest for information. And, you know, I'm seeing a lot of youth coaches now and academy coaches go on and be very, very successful at senior levels. You've also see, you'll also see that there's a lot of coaches now who haven't had that sort of linear or quite typical coaching journey. You know, if you look at my journey, it's often quite um, probably not traditional. You know, I've ended up working at grassroots levels. I've gone into different countries. I've then gone in at a professional game in the academy game. Then I've come back into grassroots in another country. Then I've gone into a head of academy coaching at a professional game. So head of coaching. I've done under 21s in the professional game. Then I've gone into uh, coach education. Then I've gone into grassroots. Then I've gone back into elite, working with international players and national teams and national coaches and coach education at a top level. Then I've come back into a director of coaching within a professional game. And so I've, I've gone into a lot of different, again, look at, um, You've got Ian Birchnell now. You know, Ian worked at university level, coaching the university game, coached the grassroots, coached Centre of Excellence, coached at Academy, coached women's football, did stuff with Leeds with Bradford, ended up going to Sweden. No, sorry, to, well, yeah, Sweden. Went to Norway first with Brian Dean, who he's worked with at Leeds, and obviously uh, he was assistant at Sarpsborg, then ended up becoming head coach in, and working with Viking, and, and then he's gone on and followed in... Um, in uh, you know Graham Potter's footsteps, you know, and and then obviously then he's got Notts County now he's League One at uh, Forest Green Rovers. You've got Steve Cooper, you know, and he's started off at Wrexham, did stuff with the academy at Liverpool, did stuff with England. Obviously he's he's flying, he's done stuff with Swansea. He's now he's gone on different senior levels, aren't they? You know, and he's with Forest, right? And they're gonna they're looking like they're gonna go so. They, I mean, I think you've got a lot of coaches now. There's many others who have worked in the academy game. I mean, Dan Machici had a stint for a short period at MK Dons. He's now gone back, having gained those experiences, he's gone back down and now he's under 18s and he was 16s with Arsenal in the academy and did stuff at MK Dons. And you, I think you're getting more educated coaches. I think you're getting these coaches that are qualified in different ways through experiences, rich experiences, open mindset. You've got coaches that have worked at different levels. You've got coaches who have given examples that have gone non-traditional, they've worked at non-league or university, or they've gone abroad and then they've come back. Um, you've got coaches who are qualified teachers. Most coaches now that I've come across um, have got a master's degree. I remember reading a job advert for Norwich years ago. This was 2000 and uh, 12, I think it was, or 2013. And they were after an under-21 coach. And one of the requirements was preferred master's degree qualified teacher. And I remember reading that advert nearly 10 years ago, thinking, or 10 years ago, thinking, wow, there's a change. And now you fast forward into 2022, you know, most people have got a master's. Most people have got the UA4A advanced youth they've probably got some kind of background in physical education. If they haven't, they're definitely a, a qualified teacher of some, some kind. Most are probably doing the PhD. You know, if you look at, um, sorry for the long answer, but you look at Eric Ramsey, coach at non-league level, did coach education for the FAW, was, uh, did pretty much near on everything. He was at Shrewsbury, which is a teeny tiny, you know, this club. And uh, he was head of coaching there. And then on the first team, went to Chelsea, as uh, 23's coach is now at United he's done his PhD at Loughborough University so you've got a coach there that's gone through the traditional UA4A and all that UEFA Pro and stuff worked at some lot non lower league levels and, and then higher level done coach education and now he's and also doing his PhD and other stuff I think you just 
you've I'm trying to give a couple of different examples here of coaches who haven't, but then have gone different routes, coaches who have uh gone into non-league, coaches who have done education. And I think you're seeing a different breed. I think a lot of coaches now are, are, are really into the science and the curiosity. I think you've seen a massive paradigm shift from isolated practices, technique driven. There's got to be an ideal solution to the problem, an ideal technical model that's shaped by the coach, very coach-centered environment. So now this other end of the spectrum, which is game-based, play-centered approaches, individualized training, who's the learner in front of us, who's the child in front of us, um, constraints-led approach, how do we manipulate uh, certain things to create certain problems for the players to solve? And we're seeing now that we, we recognize that in this world of information, we need players that can problem solve even quicker than ever before. We need players that are self-regulating and adapting. And as a result of that, our coach education is changing and has changed towards how we can create these environments that promote constant problem solving and adaptable decision-making skills, adaptable movement solutions. Uh, we're designing activities that are self-regulating so they don't require the coach to have to control everything, but actually the practice regulates itself and the players are finding their own levels within the, within the design of the activity or within the design of the problem. And I think we're, we're, we're seeing coaches now try and really think about, you know, what does that future player look like? How can we develop these players to really be so creative and skillful and come up with things that we've not seen before. So they're constantly elevating the level of playing as well as coaching as the game continues to evolve. And of course, you know, I remember being in rooms where we were saying, what does the future game look like? I was in rooms with, I won't name drop, but some pretty cool people, um, you know, 2010. And we were saying, you know, what does the future game look like? And I was saying things, they were saying things, it's interesting how many of those things have come out. When you look at VAR, look at the rule changes. I mean, I was actually doing practices where you would, and I'm sure you maybe did by accident or by design, I don't know, but where players could receive inside the penalty area within your practice. I remember getting told off by a coach educator who was putting me through my, I think it was, I was on one of my UEFA courses, I can't remember. And um, he said to me, yeah, but that's not the rules of the game. You can't receive inside, you, you know, that ball. No, 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 they shouldn't be doing that. The players should be outside. And I said, yeah, but I'm not sure that old rule of the game will exist forever. And actually, I just want to give them different problems. So I'm quite happy within the practice for them to do that. Um, again, now you can receive inside the penalty area, right? You can, can we play in the future? Can we predict what the future looks like? You know, I would not, you listen to Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger says social media will make the first substitute. Doesn't, wouldn't surprise me. I think um, I would I would love it. I don't know if everyone in the world would agree with me, probably not, but I can imagine that the goalkeeper can handball the ball, can catch the ball outside the penalty area. I would not be surprised if that happens. He'd be the only one that could do it, which would then allow him to be able to project the ball with his hands or roll it and play with his feet. But potentially you could clip the ball into him and he can play. Or maybe there isn't that ability. Maybe they put a clear rule on it where he can catch the ball high up the field, and then but they don't define where the zone is. They just say he can catch it anywhere. How will that change where that goalkeeper's start position is? Will you see keepers playing even higher than they already are now? And they're finding ways to intercept the ball or be more active in the attack. I don't know. People might go, like the goalkeeper coaches, the goalie union might totally think that's a load of nonsense. But you go, do we need throw-ins? Could it be kick-ins or dribblings? Free kicks. What if you could self-serve? Could you imagine that? If you had a free kick and you can just, like we would do on the street when we were playing with our mates as kids, we'd just take it out of our feet and have a shot or whatever, like pass to yourself. What if you could throw the ball to yourself? Like, how would that... so? The reason why I'm asking these questions is because FIFA, the world, football is the number one sport in the world. It's the most entertaining, most profitable sport in the world. So as a result of that, the national governing body of international football has to find ways to continue to make football number one. 
Otherwise, other sports can come in and overtake us. So what ways can we do to make the game more entertaining and more efficient? Well, if you do kick-ins and dribblings, the ball will stay in play longer. Okay, there'll be less transitions. Retention and possession will be clearer versus a throwing. So again, that would make the efficiency of time and ball in play more and it'd make it more entertaining. You know, years ago in America, I don't know if you remember this, do you know, do you know how they used to do the penalties? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they used to do the mad run that was on a clock, time, and but they did that. They had to change it. And obviously it was part of the conditions and they brought the World Cup and then they created the league, MLS. And, but I thought that was amazing. Like I would love to do that because it made it was so hard for the penalty taker to, to, to score. It made it more entertaining for the fans. Um, they're rushing and you had you had to like quickly touch out your feet and before you know it, you're shooting, aren't you? Anyone can find the old videos on, on YouTube. Would they bring that in? I don't know. But the, I'm, I'm trying to be curious as a coach and go, what rules are going to come into play? I think anyone, if you'd have asked anyone, you wouldn't have had to have been an expert. Most people would have predicted VAR because there was calls for it for years, especially when the margins are getting so small and there's a lot of, there's millions and millions and millions of dollars on the line. You know, and you think about all the goals that were scored that weren't scored that had huge impacts economically as well as, you know, logistically within within that setting. You know, I always remember like Frank Lampard's goal. Was it against Germany? It's Germany, second round, yeah, 2010. So these are game-changing moments. So it was always going to come in, wasn't it? And it will get better as it gets, as we get better with it. But again, it's like, what, what do we want the future to look like? How can we make it even better? I think that's where we should be as coaches. And don't be scared to say some pretty cool ideas, you know, and get shot down. I, I could be talking complete nonsense about the goalkeeper. I don't know, you know. I'd be interested to know the question of how many goalkeepers are we producing that are world-class now as a result of the specialist coaches? I'm not implying that there aren't any, but I'd be interested to know. I think this... If you don't mind me interrupting, Jared, I, yeah. I think this harps back to what you were saying. It's kind of developing a natural curiosity. And there's certainly a difference between knowing what to think and knowing how to think. Yeah. And I think very much we're in the age of unthinkable, for want of a better phrase. And, I mean, it's our due diligence, really. It's being prudent to create players that are resistant or that are resilient to that change. And I know, yeah. for example, that's something which you do an awful lot of, in fact, You've described yourself before as a learning designer, expanding learning through practice design. And I mean, yeah. it's ended up with you being curious enough, as you said, to embark upon a PhD over, I don't know how many years I'm developing adaptable players. So we all have a vested interest in it, but in terms of being able to take the gauntlet and really affect change, for me, it's very much a drip down approach, really, from the regulators, which are IFAB and FIFA. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've we've all got to be these learning designers. We should see the coach and everything we do is just this designer of problems. It's super fun. And whether that's FIFA, whether that, just being really creative. I mean, I, I take a phrase from, um, you know, Russell Earnshaw, and he, he probably took it from Kurt Vallis at Google around like creativity and innovation and learning and things. And it was the rule at Google is, you know, creativity is find the rule and break it. You know, so I think that's, it's interesting, isn't it? Find different ways to come up with strategies that will break the rule. You know, where can you come up with something different? So that's my sort of curiosity with players. If you'd have watched videos of me coaching years ago, I'm sure if we watch them all, we'll all cringe. But it might have been more, um, even then, I'm, I still will have been asking loads of questions, giving problems for sure, because I've always, I've always liked that. But I'm sure because of the education that I'll have had to have gone through, it would have been at times quite coach-centred. Even though I would have wanted to be more player, it will have been me, um, excuse me, imposing my perception upon the player. Stop. So here, ball moves here. Then it would have been that. It would have been that demonstration. It would have been, hey, here's the ball's here. This is where I want you to go. Here's the answer. Versus now, I very rarely do that. Whenever I'm coaching, it'd be more, um, I'd be asking questions to find out what did the player see. So I'd be setting questions, I'd be asking uh, questions that set a challenge that 
it's like a rhetorical question. Don't tell me, show me. So, you know, how can your movement create space for yourself or your teammate? Show me different ways you can do that. How can your your pass or your dribble eliminate two or more defenders here in this situation? Show me different ways you can do that. So they then I'm not telling them how to do it. They're going to show me, oh, maybe I could do this or maybe I could. And a lot of my stuff is very much like drive by and, again, playful and curiosity-led. There's a time where sometimes you do need to give direct, potentially direct feedback, but I would be leaning towards more questions than answers and transitionally preparing players that they have to look for information from the environment in order to come up with their own unique and adaptable solution. And I think that's where, you know, it's this, we want skillful and adaptable players. We've got to create environments to promote those, those choices, those consequences, um, and that ability to search for information from the environment versus designing environments where players don't have to look. They're doing this rehearsal, this habitual solution, movement pattern that's under the premise that, you know, that will work for every situation. And we know that that's flawed because the game is unpredictable, random, chaotic, you know. So why would we design environments that promote um, these ritual rehearsal movements when actually we need to develop environments where players have to tweak and come up with adaptable solutions under varied experiences. So that's where I'm at. And I'm, I'm excited with it. I love it. And I think more coaches are coming through this journey now where they're coming up with some pretty cool stuff. So I think the future players now are going to be so much more adaptable. And I think that should come under our philosophy. You know, so if you ask, what's your philosophy? Mine would be that it's developing players in these forever changing uh, circumstances, situations, because I want players to be able to adapt to problems that we've not seen before. And as a result of that, they're going to be better for it. You know, so yeah. And in terms of, we spoke about at the beginning of the show, ecology and playing devil's advocate here, Jared, is culture ever a limiting factor? Reason being, without making too many rash generalizations, I know from my time in the States and my time now in the Middle East, in fact, you could be having a lot of sessions where players are used to kind of command and control. And if yeah. they don't get that command and control, they don't feel safe in the environment because they expect the coach to have everything done for them. And I know very much in the academy system in the States up until recently enough, it was very much cutthroat and we speak about players succeeding and triumphing. You know, in fact, there's a lot of players doing the safe thing, just wanting to survive. So a lot of the work you're doing now, do you ever envisage that there would be limiting factors such as culture on its success? I think there, I think everything's ill-aid and it'll also take away from, won't it? I mean, culture, like working in Morocco was an incredible experience for me because, you know, as you'll know, obviously, these sort of areas, you mix in football, Africa, um, you know, Arab culture, all these little things in the melting pot. And that's that that's challenging. And I think you've got to learn different ways to adapt. You can't change history. You can't change that in a culture that's, you know, you're fighting with, with history effectively in terms of what's in, in people's DNA, you know, Morocco were heavily influenced by the French, and you can see that in everything they do with the paperwork, with the security, with the eyes everywhere, with the way that they talk, way that information is shared, um, hierarchy. You know, they're quite hierarchical. I'm in this position, I'm senior to you. You know, I can talk to this person, you can't talk to me, and this top autocratic approach. and But some players respond to that quite well. You know, or what I might perceive as aggressive, they might not perceive as aggressive. That might be fine, you know. But in our culture, maybe Western, we might be thinking, what's going on over there? So, again, it's just, it's different. Um, America, for me, is a fantastic country. Got some of the best facilities. You got some of the best infrastructures and some of the best athletic development programs in the world. They can develop some fantastic out athletes. Obviously, it's built on the commercialization of everything. 
everything is bigger, better, stronger, faster, longer. That's their that's their marketing sales strategy, capitalization, boom, 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 100 miles an hour. And if you look at it, they've got loads of little organizations. Their lead structure is quite co- problematic even for youth development because there's so many different bodies that have got an influence and shape on how players and coaches have developed and what level they can compete at, which is completely mind-boggling because we don't have those problems necessarily. We have other problems, but problems in the UK or Qatar or Dubai or wherever, New Zealand or wherever. And I think like in America, it's very much we're saying, and there's a change now where through US soccer and other people, we're trying to talk about the individual. We're trying to talk about, let's develop the individual and the collective. But the reality is, is that the culture over here is it's pay-to-play model. Parents have a, a huge say and recruitment is based around team success. So it's how many state cups have you won? How many national championships have you won? Have you gone to regionals, nationals, this, that, the other? So that's about the team. You know, they're very much like a team first centered approach versus an individual approach. So you're fighting against that because even though we're saying, hey, we're about individual player development, but over there it's, or here, it's, it's the team. Whereas if you go in other countries, you know, it doesn't matter how many cups you've won or whatever. It's how many players have gone through and had a career, how many coaches have gone on and had a career, because that's alumni as well, you know. And so I don't know if I'm answering the question right, but it's, I think culture is difficult. I think what we've got to do as coaches is understand and first really make sure that we check to understand and try and, you know, it's like anything, there's that phrase from, from Sturgis, which is it's easier to make the game fit the child than the child to fit the game. And I think it's almost the same with what we're doing in coaching is, you know, if I'm going into Morocco and I'm trying to make Morocco come to me, that's not going to work because, you know, I've got Google Docs, iCloud, calendars, you know, the way we work, you know, we say we're having a meeting at 10 o'clock, over there, it's okay, inshallah, you know, if God wants, yeah, inshallah, yeah. Or it's like, hey, bum, 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 what do you mean? We're doing, no, no, bishwe, bishwe, shwe, shwe, tranquil. It's true, right? So it's a different culture. There's no surprise they're strolling in at quarter past 10. That's if you're lucky, 11 o'clock, if at all, or they're like, you know what? I don't know, I'm done for today. I'm going to. I'm going to relax or whatever. So I think, um, apologies, I think we've got to be really mindful of where people coming from, where are, what, what journey have they had, what are the influences that they've had, and make, find ways that we, that we can allow us to be brought with, as much as we want to bring them with us, we've got to be comfortable in our own skin to allow them to bring us with them and go on that journey with them because I think we'll adapt quicker and I think they'll appreciate it more because you're coming at the level and it's just knowing what do you concede on, what do you not concede on, and it's all about individuals and that's why I love it. I mean, at the minute I can speak a few different languages. I'm constantly learning all the time and I think the more we talk about coaching, we know that it's so diversified. You've got players coming from all these different cultures and countries and experiences and they see the game differently you know like watching Morocco play and the Moroccan players so different to the Cameroon player which is so different to the way the Ghanaian players play so different to you know Brazil and the way that they'll move the ball and just what what football looks like in Brazil and be so different to what it looks like in England and Uruguay and America and and I love that. Like, I love those individual qualities and the way that their experiences. And I think the, the powerful thing for us is how can we learn from some of these cultures and experiences and the way they view the game and find little ways to sprinkle that within our, within our environments and our practices? Because we're going to create more robust, resilient, positive, adaptable players that can operate under any changing circumstance. It's a very interesting response. And for me, that's why the coaching side of the game appeals to so many people. 
once you have that beginner's mindset, it really is an infinite game where the needle is always moving. And even, you know, you speak about Charles Darwin, for example, it's not the strongest that survive, but the, the ones that are most willing to adapt. And even if you look at the elite game, you look at Carlo Ancelotti, Jose Mourinho in the last week winning European trophies within the space of 17 to 19 years. Right. You, can't, you can't argue with success such as that. Oh, God. Well, look at Ancelotti, even though, I mean, he's known for the, his people skills, his man management, yeah. his environment. I've, I've had quotes from him I've used on slide decks where he's talking about really understanding the person, you know, and when he was at Everton. But you think about his career, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, no ego. I mean, look, he's worked at Everton. He's worked at some of the biggest clubs in the world, which are a lot bigger than Everton, with all due respect to them, you know, and what he's just done recently with Real Madrid and what have you. And it's interesting how he's changed because he's on the sideline asking the players and like, what do you think? How do you think we should solve it? What are some of the strategies we should... And the players are coming up with the... Yeah, why don't we try this spot? Years ago, I mean, you, you won't be doing that in the 80s or the 90s or the two. It's very much like, I'm the coach. It's my decision. I don't, you know, don't... That myth of like, don't let the inmates run the prison. No, no, no. We don't do this. We don't... It's bump. And actually now we're seeing a, a very shift change in leadership where it's actually like we're in this together. And how can we find really cool ideas and tap into what you've seen? Because you might have a better idea than me. So why do I have to have that assumption that my way is the only way? And I think that's really powerful, isn't it? And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of lessons come from business and other strategies that are seeping into to how we coach football. And yeah, yes, unfortunately, I think the way social media kind of exasperates things nowadays, Jared. It's very much a recency bias. It's very much what, very much what is flavour of the month. And yeah. we've, seen, we've heard that about Ancelotti, that he was famously 20 minutes away from getting the sack until they made that comeback against PSG. So it's beggar's belief, really. But getting back to what we were originally discussing, it's a very pertinent topic, and it's always on my mind. The science and the art of football. I don't think we've been at a stage, average art, where the two of them have basically been so intertwined. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I've always used that phrase of like football coaching is an art that's underpinned by science because I think that's really key in that we're dealing with people, we're not dealing with robots. We're dealing with people that have got different views in the world, are wired differently, we're all made up differently, we're all unique. And there is a science to that, you know, physiologically, what we're doing within the psychology of how we interact with people, the environments, training loads. I mean, there's a lot you can go into, isn't there? And I think that's, but there is an art, you know, there's stuff that's not necessarily quantitative. It might be more qualitative. There's that unseen stuff where it's, you know, how do you interact with people? How do you connect with people, make connections with people? Um, some of the stuff where it's just instinct and you've got a gut feeling about something or you're going with the flow. And it might be a bit more like a naked chef and it's not necessarily pre-planned. So I, I would say the, there's definitely a merge. And I think we've got to be incredibly grateful that we're not the, the, the founders of this. Like we always think we're the ones who invented this first. But then when you look at history, you find that people are talking about a lot of the things we're talking about now back in the 60s. You know, it's just a different time. A lot of these ideas and even before that, the coming into fruition now, I think we're fortunate that you Tony Strudwicks and people like that, you know, people that went into United before there was a sports science department, before sports science ever existed. You know, you think about Liverpool, John Moore University, right? And back in the 90s, and one of the, you think about the history of who was the first place where you could study a, a, a bachelor of science degree in, in football or football science or coaching. Didn't exist. Like, Coaching degrees did not exist. It wasn't classed as a proper degree. And then obviously now you can go anywhere. I mean, it's all, they're all over. They're like candy. So I think we've, we've got to be grateful that there's people who have worked at certain clubs who were fighting the fight, if you like, and trying to learn as well. You know, when Prozone was introduced in Leeds back in the 90s, and again, how that... 
how other companies have spun off as a result of that and took it to other levels. And so I think we've seen an early introduction. I think other countries were ahead of us, being honest. You know, if you look at Italy and a lot of other European countries, they were already embedding uh, science and academic research and work with universities to influence how they work. You look at AC Milan, when they have the likes of like Seedorf and all those legends, Edgar Davids and all those type of players, they were working with universities to look at the real fine margins of, you know, do, like does the length of grass, like the differences there, how does that influence decision-making? Does this influence it? Does sleep, does this, does that? They were looking for everything, like the real percentages. And I think England was obviously a bit more hustle and bustle, wasn't it? And, you know, and fish and chips and beer and God knows what else. And then we've obviously seen that change where we've had educated coaches come into our league. You know, I remember when uh, Arsene Wenger was appointed at um, Arsenal, you remember this in the 90s. Who knew of him? Nobody knew of him, right? He was, this guy who worked in, was it Japan or whatever? And they called him the professor because he, he did not look like a football guy. And he had these geeky glasses and he just looked the complete opposite to what we pictured what a, a football coach would look like. And obviously he was introducing stuff. I think we're fortunate that there's loads of people have come in and we're a great generation now where we've got your Bielsa's, we've got Guardiola, we've got Jurgen Klopp, we've got Thomas Tuchels, we've got all these and, and some other top British guys as well in our national, the Premier League, which is the best league in the world and other leagues. We're able to learn, you know, and see ideas of how the game can evolve and, I think there's a huge merge between science and, and soccer now more than ever. It's continuing to blend. And I think it's an art underpinned by science. I think it's a blend. And I think what's key now is that coaches really do have to have a grasp of something here, as well as this and how it works together and how it fits for the individual um, versus only having experience in football or only having experience in sort of the academic world. And even then, I don't think that's enough. I think you've got to have other experiences in other ways, whether it's business, whether it's leadership, whatever it is, you can't just know about football. I think that's a limiting factor now. You know, if you look at the ownership now, as my last point would be that the owners now are more educated than ever before. You know, and the business structure within clubs has changed and that's changed the culture you know, there was that tradition where it was the, the culture and the strategy and the vision of the football club and how clubs operated was shaped by one individual who would come in, who would be this manager. And then when he got sacked or whatever, someone else would come in and change again. Whereas now you've got organisations going, no, 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 this is how we operate. This is how we want to build our programme. So we want to play, so we want to sell tickets this is how we want to engage with our fans they're looking at like apple google they're looking at like we're a brand how do we uh, manage that corporate message what is our message and they're recruiting individuals that mirror those values so it's changing and it's not just one individual that shapes that it's multiple so i think the game is becoming so more complex and again as a result of that it's changing the recruitment of coaches the recruitment of players everything and we've got to adapt with those times because it's only going to get, you know, further and further. And then it's probably the perfect, most perfect time to segue, Jared. I mean, being able to manage that change at speed perhaps is what you're doing at the moment with you learnably. I mean, could you inform everyone listening a bit more as to how it came about and what you hope to achieve? Yeah, so obviously I'm really excited about coaching really excited about developing player coaches and i've for years wanted to try and create something and there's a lot of noise out there there's loads of information there's a lot of noise so for coaches it's where do i look coach education is quite expensive and if you want to get you know if there's a coach who's starting off in the early part of the career but they want to get onto the ua for b there's a lot there getting rejected right or can't afford to get on the ua for b or maybe don't have any aspirations to but they're still understanding the information that's up here could still be relevant to them, even wherever they are. And when we talk about the science and the complexity of the game and what's going on, we know that the game is becoming more digital. I want to create a platform where we're bridging the gap 
between theory and practice. We're going beyond the X's and O's. So we're not just showing content that is already out there in abundance, where people are focusing more on sessions, drills, here's a session by so-and-so and the X's and O's. But actually, what's the science that underpins why they're doing what they do? Um, whether it's in the interventions, whether it's in the design, the complexity of the design, whatever it may be, but doing that in a really simplified manner. So real simple, for, not overly complex. So you learn is a digital online coach education platform where you can access online courses across any topic. You can personalize your learning and you can uh, obviously access insight interviews with some of leading experts from around the world across different sports, not just football. You've got rugby, you've got, Olympic sports, you name it. Um, obviously, you can also grow your community of practice. You can share ideas within a learning cell and really individualize your learning. And that's what inspired me to create this platform. So it's, you can download the app. It's free. You can access it on your TV, uh, laptop, tablet, iPad, whatever you want, iOS or Android device. And uh, yeah, and then obviously, if you want to, access all unlocked content and have access to everything is $4.99 a month or £50 annually. And again, great opportunity where coaches across all levels, wherever you are on that journey, you can find something that's specific to you. Fantastic. I'll be sure to link that in the show notes below. But um, No, thank you. As I mean, as we draw to a close here, just a few quick fire questions. Obviously, someone like yourself who spent the predominant part of your coaching career to date in the UK and in the US. Um, and this is something I've asked on the podcast to quite a few people who have done so the same with quite varying answers. So bear with me. What is one thing <laughs> what is one thing you would take football-wise from the UK to the US? And one thing you would take football-wise from the US to the UK? Oh. Well, I think UK to the US would be individualized learning so really making it centered around the individual who's the child in front of us and how can we develop players even though we're developing the team within that individual context um, and really seeing the individual as a project so almost versus a blocked program where the team is the focus the team can still be a focus but we're developing that individual and that wraparound care that goes into it within the collective to achieve team success as well as individual success. The other way around, I would say for USA to UK would be more probably understanding uh, commercialization of things and operating at the speed of business. Not necessarily, you know, because I think that is key in terms of understanding board of directors or other stakeholders in the organization, parents being a big one, parents and their drive, what's their motivation, what's their, their reality, you know, because we're dealing with their most prized, precious, not property because they don't own the child, but it's something, I mean, it's physically a part of them, it's come out of them, they've, and we've got to recognize that drive. Who knows that child better than anyone? In, in theory, who should? Should be the parent. Parents have, they're having to put them to bed at night. They're having to make sure they've got food in the bellies. So, and they've raised them from being a, from being a bambino. So I think we've got to recognize how to really engage with the parents more and also understand that there's other strategies that are in place and what's that overall corporate message. So in the club that I'm working for now, we have this thing of, we want to create personalized experiences for everyone that we interact with. And that's on a fan engagement level, whether it's you come to the stadium and you're watching the first team play or whether it's me coaching the players, wherever it may be and personalize it, whether it's integrating the, the parents within that journey, the type of communication I'm doing, whatever it may be. So I think that's probably the other way around, which is again, America is quite commercial and doing it, you know, business and it's understanding that, because, again, if you look at a lot of the American owners are coming into the Premier League, as well as other foreign owners, it's really understanding that and, and dealing with that dynamic because things are done very differently here. And that's been a skill that I've enjoyed. You know, I can adapt my speech to any audience, whether it's I'm talking to academics, whether it's talking to Osh, 
and you've got to capture his attention very quickly, otherwise you lose it. So you can't talk overly academic. You've got to be, as he would call, football language, or whether it's somebody like a, a, a CEO of a company. And again, it's a different, you know, so if I'm talking to Jake Reed, who's the CEO and president of Sporting Kansas City, it's going to be very different from talking to somebody else. So it's, you've got to know how to play to your audience. And I think that's something that, you know, people could benefit from learning. Very enlightening answer. And before we close, for anyone who'd, who's that small bit inspired from listening to this conversation between the both of us, Jared, and wishes to embark upon a similar journey to yourself, what advice would you have for them? Stay curious. Stay curious because, again, you've got to form your own opinion, um, but be really open-minded to understanding other people's perspectives. Me and you can both be right, and yet neither of us is wrong. And I think that's a really cool place to think that not I'm right, you're wrong, but actually both of us can be right, and yet neither of us is wrong. So then it's understanding, well, it's all coming back to context and how it relates to you and your environment or what you're trying to get out of it. And just really staying curious. Don't think that you know everything because the more I've learned, the more I've realized, like, God, I need to learn more. Uh, and you end up coming with more questions than answers. And that's great. So just be, just enjoy, enjoy the journey. Some fantastic advice to close. Jared, this conversation has been a few years in the making. And to be honest, it was well worth the wait. No, thank you. Really appreciate the time. And uh, really excited, obviously, hope to inspire loads of people and look forward to keep talking to you. This is great. And thanks for the opportunity.